Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. It's good to see everyone this morning. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Um, to, to all of you who actually care, um, Bengals or Rams? I'm just, Bengals? Anybody like Bengals? Joe Burrow, let's do this thing. I'm praying Joe Burrow gets a ring. You know, this is going to be awesome. Anybody's like, go Rams? Matthew Stafford, you just got... Stafford, you just feel pity for him? Yes. Yes, I, I hear you. Most people, honestly, don't watch football all year, and then the Super Bowl comes, and like, oh, I love the Super Bowl. I love football. It, like, it's actually the nachos that you love. It's not the actual game. But... Uh, it is Super Bowl Sunday, and that's a wonderful time to hang out with friends. Big moment this past week for us as a church community. Uh, many of you know that we are embarking on a journey of um, receiving a new church building, uh, restoring and repurposing a 1971 vintage Nazarene church building in our city. And uh, I'm really, really excited about it. But this past week, we closed on the property. So... So we officially uh, own our own church building and home that will last for generations to come. God is good. This is a miracle, and I am so thrilled by it. I love Anderson talks about how every Sunday morning he comes, and he's like, this is a miracle, man. Like, this is a miracle. And so um, not only is this a miracle, but what God has done with this building is a miracle as well. Um, This past Monday, we had our monthly renew uh, time of prayer and worship. And I'm going to, come on, come on. It was a powerful time together, and um, it's a boiler room. It's a place to be encountering the fire of God, to be stirred up in the spirit, and to to pray, and to ask, and to speak prophetically over people, and to confess, and to worship, and to ask, and to contend. And uh, I was deeply moved by our time together. Um, We do this on the first Monday of every month, so the next one will be in March, but I encourage you to mark that uh, in your calendar because um, the reality is every major revival throughout church history can be traced to a handful of people praying months or even years prior to the outpouring. A handful of people. Small little prayer gatherings precede revival. And so that's an important space for us and our city as well. A key emphasis to go along with this is the desire to cultivate a praying community, to cultivate a community that seeks after the heart of God, a community that practices prayer. This is why we have this as part of our rhythm of life, that regards prayer as the primary driver of intimacy with the Father, shaping our discipleship to Jesus and stoking the fire and power of the Spirit in us. No real move can happen without prayer. It's not possible. Nothing can happen without prayer. I've heard said before that preaching moves people, but prayer moves God. And I want to see God move. I want to see the Spirit move. And so we have to be a praying people. In James, it says the prayers of a righteous person are powerful, and effective. Our prayers have effect and are powerful. 
I've been um, diving into Watchman Nee a lot recently, specifically The Spiritual Man, which this looks intimidating. I realize that. But this is a powerful book. He was a Chinese martyr back in the 1950s and 60s, uh, was in prison for his faith. But he has this, this statement where he says, our prayers lay the track down which God's power can come. And we have to lay the tracks down for God's power to manifest himself in our time and in our moment in history. This week is week five out of eight in our Holy Spirit teaching series. Have you guys enjoyed it so far? Yes. I I truly believe this series for us, this teaching moment, will be one where we can look back at United City prior to the Holy Spirit teaching series and United City after the Holy Spirit teaching series. It's a different mode of existing as a church. And so this has been a powerful time together. And this week, we are in week five of eight weeks. We have a few more weeks to keep on moving. In fact, next week, we begin our conversations on the gifts of the Spirit. Josh Leroy is going to be teaching next week on speaking in tongues and healing. So if you're terrified, that's okay. If you're pumped, that's okay too. I'm really excited about it. And then two weeks from now, a dear friend of mine in Jordan's, Frankie King, is going to come in and preach on the gift of prophecy and word of knowledge. And so it's going to be a jam-packed couple of weeks. I'm really excited about it to receive from these two men of God over the next couple of weeks. But you get to hear me today. So um, let's just dive into our teaching together. Um, We have provided some resources out front for all of you. We have our little curated bookstore. We have a couple of books specifically on the person of the Holy Spirit. And so a couple of those that we have, we have Simon Ponsonby's Moore book, which is phenomenal. He's an Anglican priest, uh, actually in Oxford, England. Wonderful read. Uh, Tony Evans' book, The Promise, is also fantastic. Gordon Fee's Paul the Spirit and the People of God is more of a scholarship book. Gordon Fee is a New Testament scholar. And then A.W. Tozer, who's a classic Um, writer from the mid-century, How to Be Filled with the Spirit. And it's only about 80 pages, but it's packed with a powerful punch. So we have some of those out front if you'd like to dive deeper into this teaching series around the Holy Spirit. I can't say this enough. I've said it over and over again, but I can't say it enough that we want to be a learning community and an experiencing community to be both word-centered and spirit-centered both liturgical and charismatic, practice-oriented and presence-seeking. We want to operate in that radical middle, as John Wimber calls the vineyard movement. If you have missed any of the teaching series so far, you can actually go back and listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or you can watch it on YouTube to kind of catch up in terms of where we have been. Because so far, we have hit on a few different topics regarding the Holy Spirit. The first being the presence paradigm. The presence paradigm. God within us. We are now temples of the Holy Spirit. And there is this imagery of God's presence dwelling in the temple throughout the the scriptures from the Old Testament into the New. We also looked at the Spirit as a person. Not some energy or force, but as a person with personality and personhood. We've also talked about listening to the Spirit, listening to the voice of God. Last week, we talked about baptism of the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit and what those two words mean, how it impacts our life, that when the Spirit baptizes us, we are given new life and new identity, that the Holy Spirit is the animator of all life. The Holy Spirit is the gas, so to speak, that animates us in our life. And today, I want to talk to you 
about the transforming work of the Spirit. Most communicators will never give you the whole point up front of their talk, but I'm doing it right now. Every bit of what we're talking about today is summed up in this one phrase or sentence. And it is the transforming work of the Spirit. The Spirit within us wants to change us. The Spirit within us wants to shape us, transform us, mold us to become more Christ-like. So that's the entirety of my talk for the next 30 minutes, or who knows, 45, we don't know, summed up in one sentence. When I first started dating Jordan in college, talk about a miracle. One of the things I had to get used to was going to soccer games. Uh, I, I didn't play soccer growing up. I played basketball, baseball, football, but did not touch a soccer ball at all. Didn't really even go to games. Maybe I could count on one hand how many soccer games I had been to in my life. But Jordan, if you did not know, my wife was a prolific soccer player in high school. Wendy's high school Heisman. She has the Rockingham County single season scoring record. 40-some goals in a season. My wife was bad, and she's still bad. Okay? So she goes to play soccer in college, and I have to start going to these games because, you know, I'm a good boyfriend. i got to be there to support her. I have no clue what's going on in the field, really. I know goals. Like, I get the ball goes into the net. Like, I get all that. But otherwise, I don't know much about soccer. You know, I would yell. I'd get loud. I would cheer. I'd root on when everyone else was because I'm trying to just trying to join in with the crowd, you know, do what everyone else is doing and encourage Jordan out there on the field because she started as a freshman. I mean, this girl was bad, okay? 18-year-old, killing it on the soccer field. So I was cheering her on, being loud, advocating for her, encouraging her, while simultaneously not having a real clue what was going on on the soccer field. How many of you had parents like that growing up? They came to your sporting events, moms, dads, and, and they really don't have a clue, but they're yelling, though, that's my baby! And you're like, they just messed up. Why are you screaming? <laughs> they just threw the ball out of bounds. Why are you getting excited right now? Holding up signs, you know. Go, Ashley, you know, go, Tommy. You know, go do it. And they're like, I really don't know what they're doing, but go get them, Tiger. Um, some of you have parents like that. Some of your parents actually went to recitals, and they know nothing about music, not a thing about dance. But they're there to support you and encourage you, you know. Some of us know what I'm talking about. They cheer you on, but they couldn't instruct you in what you were actually doing. It seems that if we aren't careful, many of us can fall into the trap of beginning to see and think of the Holy Spirit only as a divine cheerleader and hype man. You can do it. You got it, buddy. You're valued. You're loved. I see a lot of potential in you. Keep it up. Keep fighting. This divine cheerleader with this hype man on the side. Does the Holy Spirit cheer us on? Absolutely. Does he encourage us? Of course. But he isn't a cheerleader. He is a teacher or coach or captain who cheers and encourages. But first and foremost, 
he is teaching us. He's not just cheering us on. He teaches and he encourages. He instructs and he advocates. He trains and he encourages. But he's not just your mom in the, in the stands rooting you on. Most of us are okay with a cheerleader in the stands, but a bit turned off when he comes onto our playing field. We're cool. We're cool with the spirit in the stands. You raise your little sign, root me on, cheer me on. But the moment that they come onto the field, like if you had a parent that came onto the field as a kid, you're like, Mom, get back in the stands. The moment the spirit comes onto the field, we, we get a little antsy. We get a little anxious, maybe, or a bit turned off. But in John 14 through 16, Jesus as we have seen, introduces the person of the Holy Spirit to his 12 apostles. He spends the majority of this time prior to his crucifixion talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about this one that the Father is sending. And John's record of the Spirit is called a parakletos in the Greek, a paraklete. But the Greek is parakletos. So when John speaks of this parakletos, it is translated into English as advocate or comforter or helper or counselor. These are various translations of the Greek word parakletos. We see it in different translations of the scriptures. The spirit is a counselor in both the therapeutic sense of the word as well as the attorney sense of the word. Think about the word counselor. Yes, that's a therapist, but a counselor is also an attorney. And he functions in both of those categories. But then Jesus expands the assumed job description that we have of what the advocate or the spirit does. Yes, he counsels. Yes, he comforts. Yes, he intercedes. Yes, he encourages. But it does seem as though his primary function is to teach. His primary function is to teach. The advocate is almost like this title, but then Jesus follows up with the job description of what the Spirit does. Now, the Spirit does many things, but Jesus is very specific in making sure that the disciples, the night before his crucifixion, realize that the advocate will teach. Look at John 14, 26. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Most of us, when we read John 14, 26, we stop at advocate. We stop at comforter. We stop at helper. And when we do that, hear me out. The spirit is only positioned as a cheerleader. Not saying a cheerleader can't teach, but most cheerleaders that I knew growing up weren't the best at the sport in which they were cheering for. Because if they were, they'd be on the court or they'd be on the field. Now, if you're offended by that, don't send me an email. It's okay. You're like, I chose to cheer. I could have played some other sport. I understand. But the reality is most cheerleaders that I knew growing up were probably not the best at the sport they were cheering for. 
The Spirit doesn't raise pom-poms or hold signs on the sideline. The Spirit isn't just this advocate or divine cheerleader, but rather a teacher who advocates, an instructor who encourages, and a master who counsels. Better yet, a rabbi who comforts. And this makes sense when you think about it, does it not? Because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ in us. And Christ was a master teacher. He was referred to as a rabbi. So then, if the Spirit of Christ is in us, then the vocation of the Spirit in us is to teach, lead, direct, instruct, train, educate, and coach. We see the same posture of Jesus moving into the realm of the Spirit in us as master teacher and guide and Lord and King. But he does teach in a way that is comforting, that advocates for us, and that encourages us. But his primary function or the expression of how he advocates is by way of teaching us and instructing us. Now, some of us, we had really great coaches growing up in various sports that we played or great teachers in different arts or different musical instruments we learned how to play or whatever it may be. But some of us have had some bad coaches. How many of you had some bad coaches? You, can just, you got them in your, in your mind. They're ingrained in your mind. Oh, that 70-year-old PE teacher. Wow. Like, just retire already. Please, you're bitter. You know? <laughs> some of us have had great coaches. And some of us have had bad coaches. But I guarantee that if I sat down to talk to you and asked you about this this great coach that you had, some of the best coaches or teachers you have ever had and learned from held into balance, encouraging you as well as correcting you. The best teachers and coaches are able to hold into balance encouragement and instruction. Some coaches, all they do is encourage, and the team never wins. Some coaches, all they do is instruct, and they never encourage, and the team is fighting with the coach. But the best coaches that we've ever had, the best teachers, are ones that hold into balance affirmation and discipline. Encouragement and correction. And I believe that the Spirit is the ultimate model in terms of being a teacher or a coach. Listen, friends, all of us. We don't need a cheerleader in our life. We don't need a cheerleader. Cheering a person on never taught anyone how to live. Someone looks at you and says, you can do it. I'm here for you. That teaches you nothing. Is it encouraging? Sure. Is it affirming? Absolutely. Is it helping you? Not a bit. We don't need a cheerleader. Advocating for a person never instructed anyone on how to navigate the challenges of the human experience. And what we need, friends, all of us, what we need is a teacher who advocates. One who shows us the way to live. A teacher who encourages us, but also corrects. That is what we need. We don't just need a rah-rah cheerleader on the sideline. If all you ever, friends, sense from the Spirit is you can do it. Keep it up. Way to go. 
then I promise you, that isn't the spirit. That is a super fan in the stands. It might even be your own psyche, but it isn't the spirit of God, if that's all you're ever hearing. And I've been around plenty of people wallowing in sin, and their understanding of the spirit is way to go. You can do it. I affirm you. Again, is that bad? No, it's just not complete. We need the Spirit to teach us how to live. Keep in mind the proximity of cheerleaders to the players. There is distance, is there not? There is distance between cheerleaders and the players. But in an ideal coaching scenario, an ideal coach or teacher pulls you aside, right? They pull you aside, they get close, and they speak encouraging instruction and correction into your ear. Watch a game today. Watch, you can watch the Super Bowl on the side. Watch the players on the sideline. Watch a basketball game. Coach pulls a player to the side and speaks to them in the ear. Now, sometimes they might look frustrated. <laughs> sometimes they might. But they're encouraging them, correcting them at the same time. Notice the proximity. Coaches get close. Cheerleaders don't. We don't get close to cheerleaders on the field. We get close to our teacher and our instructor. This type of correction that comes from the teacher or from the spirit specifically is called conviction. Anybody triggered yet? (laughs) Anybody? Conviction? You're like, oh, there we go. This is called conviction, or it's even referred to as discipline. Usually based on behaviors we engage in that are contrary to our newfound identity. Transformation of the Spirit is simply moving you into a place where you live in such a way that aligns with who you really are. And the Spirit will convict us so that our behaviors will align with our new identity and who we are in Christ Jesus. There's various ways that the Spirit convicts in the, in the narrative of the Scriptures. The first way the Spirit convicts is by the Scriptures. Often we will find ourselves reading the Scriptures and we get convicted. We, we see a, some, some correction where we're like, ooh, ah, ah, right? We read something in the Scriptures and it speaks to us in such a way that we feel convicted. Now keep in mind, I've said this before in prior teachings, conviction and shame are different. Shame attacks who you are. Shame is you are that. You are this. Conviction says you are not that, so don't do that. That's the difference between shame and conviction. Now, unfortunately, some of us don't like conviction, so when conviction comes, we try to create it in such a way that it becomes shame so that we don't receive any sort of discipline at all. We can't just throw around these words loosely. Some of us throw around shame, and what it really is is conviction. And some of us throw around conviction, and what it is is shame. But we have to define terms. Shame attacks our identity. Conviction wants us to change our behavior based on our new identity. Okay? So the scriptures provide us a way of conviction. The second is our inner life. When we're made new, we will get a deep kind of angst in our spirit. The one way that I've felt a lot of conviction recently is very minuscule, it seems, but when I walk past trash on the ground and don't pick it up, 
The Spirit's like, pick it up. And I'm like, that's not my job. He said, I don't care whose job it is. Pick it up. I'm like, okay, fine. Or you know when you go to the grocery store and you pick up something and you get down multiple aisles and you realize I don't need it anymore? What do you do? Put the bread in the cereal aisle. Spirit's like, uh-uh, take that bread back to the bread aisle. It's a minuscule way. Our inner self, our thoughts. But listen, friends. Hear me out. The primary way I believe that the New Testament speaks of conviction is through other believers. It's through the people of faith. Matthew 18, Jesus lays out a model for how we are to approach our brothers and sisters. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins or does something out of character with their new identity in the family of God. That's what that really means. Go and point out, or go and show their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Over and over and over again. There is this New Testament experience seen where fellow believers go to other believers and they call out sin in their life, out of love. Now, notice the familial connection. If your brother or sister, that's important. We all talk to our siblings different than we do our friends. Do we not? You can have a knockdown drag out with a sibling. But you love them. Hopefully, you love them. That's the goal. But the reality is, here, friends, if we are not honest with our brothers and sisters about the sin in their life that's leading to death and destruction, then we're not truly functioning as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you want deep intimacy and you want a sense of family and a sense of connection and you want to be known, then you've got to be close enough to a person that you're willing to get hurt. You can't, you know, feast off the intimacy in the good times and then separate yourself when things are tough. That's what friends do. We're called to be family. Most of us say we want accountability, but we don't really when it comes to the nitty-gritty. The way in which the Spirit convicts, I believe, often is through other believers. Matter of fact, there's people in our life, friends even, who we need to address some things in our life out of love. This week, there are people in this room that you're close with that you're like, i got to address this with them because I love them. Not shame. It's discipline, it's love, it's accountability, it's conviction. And I tell you what, I've been there in my life. I remember in college, I was, it was a dark, dark night. I was with a, a kind of mentor of mine. It was like 1130 at night. We were in his living room, and I had a lot, of st- a lot of sin in my life, a lot of carnality. Jordan and I were going through a tough time, and he sat down with me in the living room. And it was like a very um, supernatural experience. I felt the collision of the supernatural and natural in that moment because I had a lot of hidden sin in my life. And he began bringing the light in. He said some pretty strong words that I'm not going to say here in this space right now. But I never felt so free in my life. Now my flesh was mutilated. <laughs> but my spirit came alive. You need people in your life that can look you in the eye with love and say, what are you doing? This is not who you are. This is not who God has called you to be. And I promise when you receive that, 
It is the most liberating and freeing experience. I promise. I believe that the Spirit is most grieved whenever we lack conviction. So if the Spirit is grieved in your life, is grieving in your life, it's probably because there's something in your life that you are rejecting or in denial of that needs to change. So, what does the Spirit teach us? That's the question. What does the Spirit teach us? First off, the Spirit leads us into all truth. Spirit leads us into all truth. John 16, 13, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Here again, we see the imagery of the Spirit as a guide, the one who's providing the way, continuing with the theme of Jesus, with the invitation to follow a journey. The Spirit is a guide along the way. He leads us into all truth. And then John 14, 7, or excuse me, 14, 17, the Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. Dallas Willard, who was a philosopher at USC for a long time, many of you know that I'm a big Dallas Willard fan, says that truth reveals reality. And reality can be described as what we humans run into when we are wrong. You want to know what truth is? It's when you run into something or someone and you find yourself wrong. Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, says that the truth is a snare. You cannot have it without being caught. You cannot have the truth in such a way that you catch it, but only in such a way that it catches you. That is truth. And then St. Augustine says, where I found truth, there found I my God. Who is the truth itself? Jesus is truth embodied. He is the way and the truth and the life. Now here's the challenge. Here's kind of a quick cultural critique and commentary of our moment. We live in a so-called, quote-unquote, post-truth world where truth is relative and subjective based on experience. Yet, we also live in a moment where we see the outcries for justice, equality, and peace. But these two ideals are conflicting in terms. They conflict with one another. They aren't compatible. They're illogical to think that we are in a post-truth world where uh, truth is subjective and relative, but yet we see this pursuit of justice and peace and correction and wholeness. Lisa Fields, who's actually the uh, founder of the Jude 3 Project, says you can't have justice without absolute truth. You cannot have justice without absolute truth. And we live in a world where these two paradigms are conflicting with each other. And one of the challenges for us in the church is that we see plenty of people who advocate that Jesus is the truth, yet they reject the truth he teaches, specifically about loving and caring for the least of these, as though we are actually caring for Jesus himself. Conflicting ideals. But when we pursue justice, we have to know that there is absolute truth. Or when we are clinging to absolute truth, we have to know it is connected also to justice. Justice in the biblical worldview requires an objective and absolute right and wrong. 
a vision of the way humankind is meant to and designed to live together. We all have a vision, an objective vision of what the world is meant to look like. We talked about this a while back. We all want Eden. We have to have some absolute reference point. C.S. Lewis talks about how we can't tell if a line is crooked or not without reference to a straight line. There has to be absolute truth. The Spirit of God teaches us the truth and moves us into it by His love, no matter my experience. My experience might help me interpret the reality of truth, but truth doesn't change based on my experience. And your experience matters. But a life lived primarily on experience is like playing a game and the line's constantly changing. Truth should shape our experience and not experience shaping our understanding of truth. The Spirit reminds us also the teachings of Jesus. He specifically says that He will remind you of everything I have said to you. Often, friends, we need a reminder, do we not? We need a reminder. We need sticky notes on the refrigerator of our heart. Sticky notes to be reminded of the teachings of Jesus. And as the Spirit teaches us, our life begins to change. With the ultimate goal of looking more and more like the character exuded by Jesus of Nazareth. Remember that Jesus was also a carpenter, a tecton in the Greek. It means a builder or a craftsman. And Jesus, by way of the Spirit, not only teaches us, but he also builds us and crafts us and shapes us and whittles us down to look more like him when he holds us up at the end of time. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, probably my favorite verse in the entire New Testament. I go back to it often. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the what? Spirit. The Spirit transforms us or changes us into a more pure reflection of Jesus into the world. And that transformation occurs in the presence of God, in the fire of God. To contemplate here in the original language was to ponder or think about, but it also was to reflect as in a mirror. And so when we talk about contemplating the Lord's glory, we're also talking about reflecting His glory in the world around us. And God's glory, friends, is His brightness, His splendor, or His weight. And we are to reflect that brightness. Just as Moses came down from Sinai reflecting the brightness of God, the glory of God, the glory of God, excuse me. We are to reflect his glory in this world. Now, you know, in the summer, you can always tell when people have spent a, a week at the beach. You know, they come back, and you're like, whoa, you've been in the sun. You know what I'm saying? Like you just got fried. You can tell. You can tell when people have been in the sun. And I promise you this, that when you come out of the manifest presence of God, encountering the glory and the brightness of God, we will reflect that reality. We will reflect the sun when we come out of the manifest presence. Just like when we spend a week at the beach and we come away and people go, whoa, you just spent a week at the beach. 
When you come out of the manifest presence of God, people go, whoa, you reflect the glory of God. Happens in the same way. And as we continue to create time and make room, as the song talked about a bit ago, in space to be in the presence, we are transformed, shaped, changed to look more like Jesus. The Greek word for transformation here is metamorpho. I'm throwing a lot of Greek words at you today. And it's where we get our word metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis comes from this Greek word metamorpho. And here's the zoological definition of metamorphosis. See if it does, this doesn't reign true with the passage. A change of the form or nature of a thing or person into a completely different one by natural or supernatural means. Here we see the picture of a butterfly, the perfect example of metamorphosis. The butterfly changes and transforms over time. And Paul is saying that Christ in us is doing the same thing, transforming us. I love that this moment here is called chrysalis. Chrysalis, some of you maybe went to a chrysalis experience in the United Methodist Church growing up. A chrysalis really is a, a major moment in a person's life. It's essentially what it represents. A moment of a whole new direction is happening. There's a new shift coming. The New Testament calls that repentance. To change the way one thinks. To change the way one lives. That's our chrysalis moment. To move in a new direction. And over time, we begin to change and be transformed, going through this metamorphosis process. This process, which I touched on briefly last week, is referred to as, here's a big word, sanctification. Sanctification. And sanctification is the cleansing and purification process of forming us into greater Christ-likeness. And this happens in the presence of God. This happens in the presence of God. And by creating space and time to be with God, embracing the means of grace that he has given us so that he can shape us and sanctify us. Now, two metaphors of the Spirit that allude to this are fire and water. Spirit is often referred to as, as fire and water. Fire burns off the dirt. Water cleans off the dirt. And that is the sanctifying process. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The very first verse that Peter writes to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says this. You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Our sanctification, our sanctification is in conjunction with our obedience to the teachings of Jesus. When we obey, we're being sanctified. And as we are being sanctified, we are obeying. They are connected. We are empowered by the Spirit to walk in a new way, a new lifestyle. And when we obey, that is sanctification expressed. When we are obeying the teachings of Jesus, we're responding to conviction, and you're like, oh, I can't do that anymore. Like, I'm a different person now. That's sanctification. You're being sanctified and purified. Rich Velotis says that Christianity, and here's our challenge, Christianity in the Western world is often marginalized as a life accessory rather than the means of powerful life transformation. Look, this is not an accessory to your life. The entire call of the believer is to a life of transformation. Yeah. Not an accessory. Not an event. A new lifestyle. A new journey. 
a new way of living. Transformation is at the core of the Christian experience. As I mentioned last week, salvation is the beginning. And that salvation is worked out in us. The New Living Translation says, shows the result of our salvation. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Obeying God with deep reverence. When salvation is being worked out, it means we are obeying Jesus. We are walking in faithful obedience to God with deep worship and reverence. Justification and sanctification can't be compartmentalized. We've, a lot of us grew up in churches. We heard a lot about justification. You're justified. You've been made right by God. He's done the work for you. Yes, that's true. But that's the doorway into the process of sanctification. Listen, you can't get to Pentecost without Calvary. But you got to have both. Some of you want Pentecost and you ain't been on the cross yet. You got to go through Calvary to get to Pentecost. The cross and the indwelling of the Spirit go hand in hand. Justification and sanctification must be unified together. They are part of the entire salvation process. And hear me, friends. My theology is that salvation is, in fact, a process. It's not just as I prayed a prayer, boom, good, let's keep going. That's not it. That's when you're justified, you're converted, and you're made new. The Spirit indwells you. But then the Spirit gets to work. The the cross accomplishes all things. But the Spirit administers the work of the cross in our life. It's a process. Some of us live in such a way where there's just Father and Son. There's no Spirit. Oh, I've been justified. Okay, great. Now what? The Spirit wants to transform you because of Christ's bloodshed on the cross, giving you and appropriating to you the power of His resurrection in such a way that it transforms our life. Are you tracking with me? Four of you. Awesome. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. The truth. Not a truth. The truth. The person of Jesus Christ. We are being saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We see that language all through the New Testament. Sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctified by the Spirit. It's all through the Scriptures. And the very cry of Paul to the church in Galatia is that they have Christ formed in them. Collectively. Formation happens within the communal body that is the church. You're not going to be formed in isolation. You're going to be formed in community. We are going to be formed together. What God is doing in our community right now is a collective formation. All of us, the entire body. We, friends, must be changed. You must be changed. We must be transformed. We must be cleansed. We must be sanctified to look and to look like and reflect the glory of God in our world. Our world is desperate for a peculiar people that is the church that looks different from the rest of us, that has a different way of living, a different ethic, a different type of love, a different type of goodness. We have to look like we've encountered the presence of God. God loves you where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. Ponsonby says, if Satan cannot keep us from, the coming, from coming to Christ, he will keep 
us from coming closer to Christ. If He cannot hinder our salvation, He will seek to hinder our sanctification. For too long, the church has merely tried to get people converted, to pray a prayer, to say this thing. And we've forgotten to teach people the way of Jesus. And Paul calls this life one who walks in step with the Spirit. There has been a great chasm in the Western church between belief and behavior. This is referred to as a cognitive dissonance. There's a disconnect between what we believe about the world and how we actually behave in the world as a response to that belief. They have to go hand in hand. Because our primary vision of God for most of us has been of a cosmic cheerleader, we in turn become earthly cheerleaders of God. But God doesn't need cheerleaders. He doesn't want fans. He wants resilient on the field, on the court, in the classroom, disciples who are living and walking by the Spirit with their minds being renewed by the Spirit and being formed to look more and more like His Son, Jesus. This is another aspect of the fire Spirit of God. The fire of God not only purifies us, but also empowers us to live. To live in the resurrection life of Jesus and to reject the way of our former self and walk fully in our made new self. If you are still living like you lived three years ago after encountering Jesus and you look exactly the same, I'm not sure what you encountered. You might have had an emotional moment. You might have heard a good song. You might have gotten the tinglys. But the Spirit of God wants to change you and transform you. Most of the stories of transformation I've heard about come in very obscure spaces, times, and places. Sometimes it's in large gatherings, of course. Sometimes it's in random places. John Tyson talks about being overcome with the Spirit as a butcher apprentice in the refrigerator at a butcher shop in Australia. He's overcome with the Spirit of God. Paul's on the Damascus Road when he encounters the Spirit, encounters Jesus himself. On the Damascus Road. We have to change and look like we've had an encounter. I touched briefly on this last week as well, but the the new character that we're given is referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Now keep in mind the language is fruit, singular, not fruits. You don't pick and choose. They all come together when we live the life in the Spirit. It's an interesting metaphor to use the word fruit, this idea of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, It's very garden-esque, and we see it all throughout the, the Scriptures as well, this garden metaphor, but I particularly love this one. You know, why do trees bear fruit? It's not because some law or rule, but simply because trees are alive. Trees bear fruit because they are living by default. And when we are given new life, all of us, by default, Paul is saying we bear fruit. They aren't chosen again. They are given by default. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I'm going to go ahead and get um, Izzy to come on up if you can as we kind of move into our time of closing out this morning. I have this sense that 95% of people, even in the modern West where we live now, 
desire some level of all of these character traits. In fact, secular culture has a counterfeit form of all of them, except for one. There's one fruit of the Spirit that that the secular narrative does not have a counterfeit for. One is antithetical altogether to the rhetoric of our day, and that is self-control. Self-control is utterly foreign in a hedonistic world that says, do whatever makes you feel good. The Greek word used here means the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. In a world that advocates for self-indulgence, pleasure-seeking, and expressive individualism, Paul argues that a life full of the Spirit produces the fruit of self-control, restraint, and temperance. Now, this is just a teaser for our teaching series in March on what it means to be human. But in a moment where anxiety and decision fatigue is utterly rampant around us, I believe an antidote is to embrace and open ourselves up to restraint and self-control. To embrace limits, not eliminate them. And as we close today, I want us to realize that the Spirit in us is at work. The Spirit is at work right now, in this moment, in this room. You are being transformed by the Spirit of God. Right now, He's cleansing you. Right now, He's purifying your heart. Be more aware of it. Open your eyes to it. Because when He's transforming us, the result of that is not just fruit of the Spirit, but it's actually testifying to the person of Jesus. How often in your week are you testifying about Jesus? When the Spirit is working in you, we testify about the person of Jesus. We must begin to connect belief and behavior, submitting to the Spirit as our comforting teacher. The way of your past is not the way of your future. The way of your past is not the way of your future.